big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our newest patrons, Margaret, Lauren, Bridget, and Yvette. Plus, a special shout out to Katie, who upgraded their pledge. If you want to be like these awesome people and get access to our notes, outtakes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us. And now enjoy this week's episode covering part two of the 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility with our guest, Vanessa Zoltan. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about the second quarter of... Sense and Sensibility 1995, starring Emma Thompson, Hugh Grant, Kate Winslet, and Alan Rickman. And we are joined here today by Vanessa Zoltan of Not Sorry Productions. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much. It's so fun to be back. We are just going to dive right in. If you want to hear all about Vanessa's Jane Austen hot takes, you should go back and listen to the first episode covering part one of the 1995 Sense and Sensibility. But today, I think we should just dive right in. What do you guys think? Oh, I'm in. Yeah, don't get me started again. (laughs) If if you go back and listen, there's a hot take embedded somewhere in the middle of that episode. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't even remember, but it's it's probably true. (laughs) So where we left off, the Dashwoods had just left Norland, and we are arriving now at Barton Cottage. Now, this was a good shock. The entire cast of Harry Potter is in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Because Uprol's Cornelius Fudge and the portrait of the fat lady just in a in a carriage with 15 dogs. In my head, the way I describe this part is it's Mrs. Jennings and Sir John Middleton approaching the Dashwoods with what can only be described as a waterfall of dogs going towards them yes it makes a hundred percent sense that they have fifteen thousand dogs and (laughs) i was trying to catch the dogs names i know at least one of them was named casper and i don't remember but they did name another one i just couldn't i couldn't hear what it was at first i thought the dog's name was thomas but that's their servant so (laughs) (laughs) they were like down thomas but that's not what they said (laughs) i just misheard it so the dogs are all running up cornelius fudge is there Marianne goes into the cottage while the Jenningses are trying to get them to come over for dinner. And it's just all in grayscale. I thought this was so well done. She walks in, she's wearing a gray coat and her hair is like all bright, but everything else is gray. And she's just walking through and it's so like, it's like a beachy, like washed out kind of feeling and it's empty and they're kind of muted in the background. I thought this was just a stunning scene aesthetically if we're being honest this house is actually real estate goals oh yeah oh yeah even i mean the 
quote unquote cottage. I'm like, please God, right? Genteel poverty is fascinating. Oh yeah. We're so poor. We can only afford two servants. I mean, one, there was so much labor that needed to happen just to run a house, right? Like the firewood and making candles and right. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to say that having a servant would be the same as having like live in help now by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, genteel poverty, you suffer at a high level. Mm-hmm. It does kind of remind me of, I know some people who, like, when they make a lot of money, get really stressed that they're not making enough money. Yeah. And it's very common to sort of stress out about it. The more money you make, the more you're like, oh, but it's not enough to get this done and this done and save in this way and this way. And there's a way in which genteel poverty in the Austin world really reflects that. It's not that to get everything you want and to be doing things the fiscally correct way doesn't require a larger salary. It's just that like there's a lot of people living on less than you. But I do digress. I think one thing that Molly said to me that I think is absolutely true is that this is exactly how the cottage is described in the book. Yeah, they did a really good job with the set here. Speaking of their genteel poverty and the way that they show this, Eleanor and Marianne are sharing a room that night. They're cold. They're shivering. Eleanor gets into bed and Marianne says, your feet are cold. And Eleanor has to get back out of bed and put on socks and get back in bed. Then we jump to the next day where Margaret is out playing in the dirt and then Marianne is giving her a bath and she's like, you could grow a potato on the back of your neck. It's so dirty. And (laughs) Margaret's like, it's cold. And then Eleanor comes in with hot water and she's like, it's hot. And you just see them (laughs) struggling to make do with just them and not their big house and their many servants. It goes to also Vanessa's point about showing the inconveniences of living in this time period. Yeah. And this is a big adjustment for Margaret. She probably used to be able to wash in a tub because they had enough servants to bring up, right, like basins and basins of water. And now she's having to wash like this. Like, as much as it is not horrible, right, it's a big change for a little kid. Yeah. 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 Then it's uh, a meal at the park. And this is... One of the funniest scenes, I think, but it starts with Mrs. Jennings telling them about the colonel and saying that he's such an eligible bachelor, he'd be really good for Eleanor, but she thinks Eleanor might have some guy back in Norland, and they're like, ooh, ooh, do you, do you? <laughs> and <laughs> and then this is where Margaret has her iconic moment of like, oh yeah, he exists and his name starts with an F. Then they go back and forth being like, oh, what's his name? Fortescue Fotheringay. <laughs> Fotheringay. Can you imagine being like, yeah, this is my boyfriend Fotheringay. <laughs> yes, I can. I would be so proud. Yes, absolutely. Uh, they'd make such a good team. Those two, uh, Mr. Middleton and Lady Jennings. Wait, Sir John Middleton and Lady Mrs. Jennings. I was watching with my older stepdaughter and she was like, they're a really cute couple. And I was like, they're (laughs) mother-in-law and and son-in-law. And she was like, I don't know why, but that bums me out. Oh my God. She really loved the vibe of like her being a little older than him and like not young and hot. And she was like, I was super into them. I was like, sorry, kiddo. That's the best thing I've ever heard. I know. She's got some really great takes. I love that. I love that. I'm into that. We actually had a conversation, not to pull us on a huge tangent, 
early on where we were like, why did Mrs. Jennings marry her daughters the way she did? Because wouldn't Lady Middleton have made a good wife for Mr. Palmer? And wouldn't Charlotte have made a good wife for Sir John? But opposites attract. Yes. And as we learned in Pride and Prejudice, you need a little bit of the introvert and a little bit of the extrovert in every relationship. Yes. Dr. House wants who he wants, and he wants umbrage. Does he? (laughs) Let him have her. He's so mean to her. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to talk about him because their whole thing is so fascinating in this movie, and he is so good. But we'll get there. So Marianne decides to cut off this Edward talk by asking to play the piano forte. So we go to her playing the piano forte and enter... Brandon, at which point I had to get up and get on my knees in front of the TV so that I could fully experience. Um, Just so you know, I'm picturing you like in 101 Dalmatians, the puppy that constantly is like crawling up to the TV in order to look closely at the dogs. That is how I'm picturing you. I need you to know that that is exactly what I did. (laughs) Okay, great. So you would be correct. You're like a cute little Dalmatian puppy wagging your cute little uh, Dalmatian butt. Good. Oh, yeah, that's exactly it. So you're correct in thinking that. I'm a genius. He walks in and he hears Marianne playing and he's watching her and he is so immediately smitten with her. It's very obvious. And Eleanor sees him watching her. And man, I love him so much. And we talked about this a bit in the last episode. But I just have such a hard time picturing this as a romantic connection. And I do think that in the time period, it was much more common. We've talked about that throughout the book. However, seeing it is really weird for me. Was it more common? I feel like I still know a lot of couples like this. That's true. I mean, I'm in a relationship. My partner is significantly older than I am. We did not meet when I was 17, so I feel like there's a really big difference there. There is a big difference. Like, my, when I told my mom that I thought it was weird when I was reading the book, she was like, well, your grandpa's wife, who is, I call by her first name, I don't really call her grandma, but, like, she is an, a comparable age difference, and it's not weird, but that's because they're in their, like, 60s and 80s or, or right. 90s, 70s and 90s. So it, it's like... Once you get past a certain age, and also the thing is, though, the thing is, though, in the book, he's supposed to be 30, what, 5, 36, and she's 17. Yeah. He looks like he's in his 40s to me. He's in his 40s. but He's gotta be. I just looked it up the other night. He's in his 40s. But, like, not significantly older than 35. The, the, the problem is that he is a fully formed adult who has gone to India and back and she is a child right like and like that is the problem is that he is in love with a post-pubescent child yes that definitely is a problem and I really respect people's issues with it I think for me for example it freaks me out less than Wickham and Lydia who have a smaller age difference because Colonel Brandon to be fair doesn't have interest in Um, manipulating or um, infantilizing Marianne and forcing her into decisions or taking control of her life. One thing that's pretty defining through the book and in the movie, in my opinion, is that he is respecting her choices and how she's deciding to live her life. And I think treating her like an adult 
makes a big difference in how I feel about the romance. That being said, I'm also just such a sucker for Alan Rickman's performance in this. And I watched this movie so young that it has stuck with me for so long that I, I just the gentleness of his, his love and care for her that just is apparent from the first moment he lays eyes on her is something that for me drives the compelling story forward. And that makes me focus on the age difference less. I don't think it's not there. And I totally do understand the take on that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that I agree with you on all of that. It's truly for me just the fact that she is actually cast as a 17 year old. And he is cast probably 10 years older, or at least like eight years older than the age that he's supposed to be. Um, That just makes it just a little bit too weird that I can't like see the romantic attachment in the book. I like in the by the end, I could actually see it. But in this, I couldn't really. But that's all just to say, like, I still love his performance. And I think it's beautiful. And I think that there's an argument to be made that Marianne falls in love with the father figure after she gets, like, jilted in such a profound Mm. way by Mm. sort of a peer, right? At least closer to a peer. Yeah. She wants a man who's going to take care of her and take control. And, like, that is fair given that she has no access to any independence and that she just lost her father figure exactly so like hooking up with a father figure makes sense to me I think what I find pernicious is the the fact that he falls in love with her sort of at first sight right and that she is this replacement for was it Eliza who he loved yes right and right that she's like clearly Eliza's frozen in his mind from before he went to India and she is the age that Right. Marianne is the age that Eliza was when he left. And so he's just like getting a second chance at Eliza, even though she's dead. I find really upsetting. Yeah. Come to think of it. I mean, it's almost like I mean, it is like so he was young when he was with Eliza. They Mm -hmm. grew up together, but she died and he was I mean, when he left her, he was young. Then he got kind of frozen in time there. Not only was she frozen in time, but I think that maybe his growth, like, it's a traumatic experience that caused him to not be able to fully move on. And so when he walked in, I think the movie did this really well. It's not something that I thought about in the book, but he walks in and he sees her. And it's almost like you can see in his eyes, like, he is seeing someone else there. Mm Wow. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in the book because in the book to me, it was like he has a type. She's like similar to totally. Eliza. But this is like, yes, he's seeing something like there's transference happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like a flash from the past. And like, God bless him. He knows it. Right. So he like yeah. really keeps the distance from her. Right. And I think Alan Rickman plays it all beautifully. And mm-hmm. um, he does not come on to her. He does not like swoon over her all the time right like he's just like attentive and respectful so I feel like he even sort of knows what's going on yeah I I think that of any character in this entire story Colonel Brandon has the most self-awareness definitely (laughs) and that's a huge advantage uh to the character all this to say that when he walks in and you you see him look at her I love the way you put that Vanessa and for better or for worse he does look at her and immediately just become transfixed And it's mesmerizing to watch because I was watching him become transfixed with Marianne as I was watching Molly become transfixed with him. 
it was it was magical. Like, it was like a little circle, and Kate yeah. Winslet was staring at Molly. Was like, oh my god, Molly! Oh my god, I wish. And it was a full circle. Kate Winslet, if you want to come on this podcast. <laughs> Anyways, so, <laughs> I'm flushed. They're leaving now. We cut to them in the carriage, and Marianne is yelling at Margaret for revealing about Edward having the F name and saying that she, Margaret's like, everyone was talking about it. Mrs. Jennings was talking about it. And Marianne is like, Mrs. Jennings isn't everyone. And Margaret says, I like her. She talks about things. We never talk about things. And that is another instance where Margaret acts as a lens for us to view this family's grief because this little girl wants to process stuff. And she can't because nobody will talk about it because everyone's grieving in their own ways. Eleanor silently, Marianne through the piano, and Mrs. Dashwood crying all the time, but never actually talking about it. And I'm sure Margaret's talking about not just their grief, but it comes out, the way it comes out is very much like, we weren't always this way. Why don't we talk anymore? Which I thought was really beautiful. And who doesn't love hanging out with gossips? Oh, yeah. Gossips are the most fun people. There was a point in time where we were talking and I was like, Mrs. Jennings and John Middleton don't bother me because... They're loud and vulgar and gossipy. And then I realized it's because we are loud and vulgar and gossipy. So we are basically just Mrs. Jennings and John Middleton doing this podcast, shipping our little characters every week. Yes. Yes, it's true. What are they doing but shipping? I'm very fond of gossips. To quote Olympia Dukakis and Steel Magnolias, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit by me. Right? Like, <laughs> let's just let's just talk. And I love that Marianne is like a vision of the kind of old woman I want to be. Fat and gossiping. Relatable, Marianne. Iconic. Speaking of, if you don't have anything nice to say, sit by me. Mrs. Dashwood tells Margaret, if you don't have anything appropriate to say, speak of the weather, which later Margaret will do, which I thought was <laughs> chef's kiss. We've had very nice weather. Yeah. <laughs> so the next day they're collecting reeds and Marianne's struggling with a reed and Colonel Brandon offers her a knife and you can see that she kind of like he he doesn't linger he gives it to her and disappears but she looks like mildly uncomfortable like you know that she is catching on a little bit Mm -hmm. but she doesn't care too much but like there's a hint of it in her eyes and just god bless the prop master who lovingly put a little bit of Kate Winslet's black lace bonnet wrap like on the read, right? Again, yeah. it's just this like angly desire to show you that these are real people who like the knots in their aprons get stuck and their, mm-hmm. you know, lace gets stuck on the reeds and it's excellent. And the fact that she's wearing her mourning lace, like her black lace of mourning while still trying to go on and do life things just shows where we're at. Yeah. So good. It's so good. So good. So subtle. Yeah. Then we cut to Sir John and Brandon polishing their guns or doing whatever it is that men do. <laughs> I love that you think that they are polishing their guns. What are they to, doing? I mean, cleaning. But oh. I, I, I just, polishing is something you, you, you do for a shot. I love it. They just want their guns to be shiny. They're accessories. <laughs> You're so right. I don't know if you can tell by the everything about us, but we are two girls who know very, very little about hunting rifles. <laughs> Massachusetts and I'm a Jew from LA. <laughs> I, 
I just live in the world. <laughs> I, sorry, I need to go put down my hunting rifle. <laughs> I've named it Jim. I take it out on Sundays. Listen, you never know because one of my dearest friends is uh, a costume designer and very artistic, loves pink, spends all of her time you know, drinking rosé, watching Sex and City. And she grew up in the country and she is quite the little hunter. So you never know. Sometimes people can surprise I, you. Except I told you that I'm from the San Fernando Valley and love Clueless. <laughs> That's fair. So That's true, fair. you never That's know. Fair. But have you seen Clueless? There are no hunting rifles. That's true. That is a movie very, very direct, bereft of hunting rifles. Famously so. <laughs> That's what everyone says about Clueless is that it has no hunting yeah. rifles in it. Based on Emma, written by Amy Heckerling, no hunting rifles. <laughs> but you know what movie does have hunting rifles in it? There it is, Molly. Look at you, the pro. Comes in sensibility with the segue. And we're polishing some guns. <laughs> They're polishing guns and john is like you know the word on the street is you've got your eyes on marianne dashwood and colonel brandon says marianne dashwood would no more think of me than she would of you john and the better for her such a burn to imply that like it is so far-fetched that marianne would think of john it's like you're ugly and she wouldn't that's how little she thinks of me (laughs) she equates the two of us and we both know we're totally in different leagues <laughs> but she can't even see that it's such a burn but i love sir john because he handles it so well he's like do not think of yourself so meanly no he like leans into the joke god bless him very pure i mean he he just like it just bounces right off him sir john sir john can get it i'm sorry that was not i didn't know i was gonna say that i don't i don't think that. no leave it in leave it in though <laughs> Leave it in. He's very charming. Is he? Oh, man. He has great dogs. Oh, I find him very charming. He's like, come live in my cottage for free. And when they try to thank him, he's like, none of that. None of that. Right? Like, I think he is a a deeply good, kind person. Absolutely. You know what? You're right. I want to reinforce my statement that Sir John can get it. Yeah, he can get it. Yeah. We're going to have to put a poll on our Instagram. Uh, would you go for Sir John? Would you not? Can Sir John get it? Yes. Or but no? you know who can get it? This movie. So <laughs> yes, this Colonel Brandon can get it. So um, he says it's all the better for her. He really thinks that he is not good for this girl. And, and we appreciate that in this house. Then we cut to Mrs. Jennings and Eleanor watching the others play a game of something. Horseshoes? They're like bowling, garden bowling. Garden bowling. Not horseshoes at all. Garden bowling. How many times have I seen this movie? She says. I'm guessing a lot of times. So this, I have to say, how dare they? And this is the one thing that I had a problem with in this movie. I mean, I don't care that much, but I do. That they took the opportunity of telling this story to Eleanor away from Colonel Brandon himself and put that on to Mrs. Jennings. I understand why they did it, because this Colonel Brandon is... Actually, let me get into it. I understand why they did it. And the Colonel Brandon and Eleanor friendship that is present in the book is very, very, very important to me as someone who is a Brandon or a shipper. They completely erased that in the movie, and I think that that starts with... Not completely, Mm -hmm. but 
they really diminished that in the movie. And I think that that starts with this because this is supposed to be Colonel Brandon telling Eleanor his tragic story. And instead they have Mrs. Jennings tell it, which makes sense, but it's taking away this moment of bonding between Colonel Brandon and Eleanor. Yes. I think that the performers carry the friendship through their like little moments anyway. Sure. Um, Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman. And I think it's because they cut I they cut the last misdirect, you know, miscommunication between Edward and Eleanor in the movie, right? So Edward never thinks that she's with Colonel Brandon and because of that, right, like they just cut the intimacy between the two of them. I think it was it was smart streamlining. I agree. I love watching Eleanor and Colonel Brandon together. They have they have some great little moments. They do. They totally do. And I think the movie diminished that friendship because they didn't want to have happen what happened to me, which is that I got so focused on shipping Colonel Brandon and Eleanor that I lost track of the plot and Becca had to reel me in. Yeah. It was the first time I had to give Molly a major spoiler on anything on the podcast because she literally couldn't focus on the actual book because she was like, and this is how Eleanor and Brandon are going to get together. And I was like, okay, you're just really, really off and I need to I need to set you right. (laughs) And I think the movie wanted to avoid that happening on a mass scale because, with you know, with movies that like people ship harder, I think um, when it's a movie. Like, people put the pictures of people together and put it on their Facebook profile page. Like, I, you know, that's what I did. When I, I also so. think that it's a matter of just time. Like, this this movie is two hours, 15 minutes. And when they are making this movie, they have to streamline the, as Vanessa said very cleanly, like, they had to streamline the plot. And one thing that Emma Thompson did in her screenplay was flesh out the romantic relationships a little bit more than they are fleshed out in the book where the book favors primarily the Eleanor and Marianne sisterhood and the Colonel Brandon and Eleanor friendship over uh, some of the fleshing out that's done say between Edward and Eleanor at the beginning and Colonel Brandon and Marianne at the end. And the there's reasons Jane Austen wrote it that way for sure. But I think for the purpose of telling a cohesive story, it's better to get the the romance element. And if they're going to give more time to one of those two relationships, I would greatly prefer it be Eleanor and Marianne, just for how I read the book. And I agree with Vanessa that the two actors really do carry a, a warmth and friendship together through the movie, which is very important. And the comes from the fact that those two actors are, were very good friends in real life. That's May Alan Rickman rest in peace. May he rest in peace. I saw um, someone had, I, when I was, you know, Googling the cast, which I wasn't supposed to be doing. But <laughs> One I was thing doing I anyway. asked you not to do. I know it, but I was looking at um, an article about Red Nose's actual, Red Nose Day actually, or whatever that Love Actually 10 Minute sequel was. It was like, came out several years after the fact. And Emma Thompson didn't appear in it because she said she couldn't bear to appear in it without Alan Rickman. And that broke my damn heart. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. 
The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now, back to this episode. Anyway. Yes, I agree with what both of you have said, and I totally, again, understand why they had to do it. It hurt me, but it was okay in the end. (laughs) Um, So Mrs. Jennings tells Eleanor the whole story, except they take out the part where Eliza was married to Brandon's brother and that he treated her badly. I don't know why they did that. I guess more streamlining, but it was just a slightly more simplified story. Then Marianne and Brandon are walking towards them, the two of them, and you can see them smiling and laughing together and being friends, which is nice. And Mrs. Jennings tries to get them to play a duet together. She's like, oh, you know, Brandon shares your passion for music. And Marianne is like, shut it down. I don't know any duets. <laughs> and then she she is properly embarrassed for having to shut down Brandon, right? She's like, I'm yes. sorry, Colonel. But she clearly is also just pissed, right, at Ms. Jennings, which leads mm-hmm. to the next scene's first line, right? Yes. We never to have a moment's peace. Yeah, she's like, why are they following me around? Why are they trying to get me to date him? He's old. He's got a rheumatism. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> Meanwhile, they receive a package and everything comes screeching to a halt when it's the Atlas. Because Edward was supposed to bring that himself. I believe we can get a record scratch in there. Yeah, record scratch, Graham. Like a sad record scratch. Graham is our audio engineer. And he gives us sound effects. (laughs) It is very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Margaret's really disappointed. Like, why didn't he come? And Marianne is like, come on, I'm going to take you for a walk. And Margaret's like, no, it's going to rain. And Marianne's like, it's not going to rain. And Margaret's like, you always say that. And then it always does. I just wanted to say really quickly, you wrote in your notes, did this happen in the book? And um, I wanted to point out, this is actually another major plot point. You didn't notice that they cut, which was Edward coming to visit them in (laughs) Barton Cottage. Wow. Well, they really played it off very smoothly, didn't they? With the ring of hair. Come on. Right. Okay. One big thing that they cut (laughs) was that there's no hair play. There's no back and forth with the freaking hair. 
hair play. I'm so sorry that I heard that. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry that I said it. Thank you. I I don't forgive you, but I will eventually. Thank you. I you know what? I'll I'll take that in time. We'll get past this. Yeah, there's none of that. Um, I'm upset about it because the whole thing, that's why I thought that Eleanor and Edward knew each other already, because in the book they get give them a lot of time. In the movie, it's like they had this week together, however long it was probably longer than that, but they just had a little time where they fell in love really fast and then nothing, 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 and then all of a sudden something. And somehow I still believe it. Like they do a good job because the actors have chemistry and they do a good job with it. But yeah, I was missing that for sure. But I do like this him not coming thing. Can't believe I forgot that. I will say that the fact that Becca had to point me back to the notes, I always write my notes in such like detail, like literally moment by moment thinking like, I'm never going to be able to remember all of this. So I have to write it all down. And then I just like put my notes to the side and I start quoting the (laughs) the movie like word for word because I've seen it so many times by this point. It's dangerous, but it, it happens. Yeah. So we go for a walk and it is raining and Margaret is complaining about how her she's going to catch a cough and Marianne's like, no, you're not foreshadow, foreshadow, foreshadow. (laughs) And She's like, just over that hill, there's going to be some rabbits. And Margaret's like, I don't want to look at the rabbits. And Marianne's like, yes, you do. I loved this because it was all like kind of background talk with the rain coming down and the wind. Yes. But you got like their sisterly vibes going on. So then we go to the field of rabbits and Marianne is like, look, there's a patch of blue sky. Let's chase it. And she starts running down the hill. And this is where she trips and falls down the hill. And I just have to say with so much respect to Kate Winslet that she starts running down the hill and you can tell that this is like a staged, like a stage combat fall. And she's like, she like starts to go for it. And then she's like, that wasn't right. And then she like does it again and rolls down the hill. I am going to push back on that because I do not think Ang Lee would let an imperfect shot into the film. Okay, and fair, I think fair. sometimes you are starting the fall and you're like, no, I caught myself. And then you're like, no, I freaking didn't. And you biff it. I agree. The choreography is as you described. She like skips and it looks wobbly, but then she's fine and then she's not again. But I just think as someone who falls far too frequently for my age, <laughs> like I I think this is a recognizable form of fall to me. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. I hate to push back. <laughs> really quick on the Ang Lee being a perfectionist thing. One fun interview from this movie is that Hugh Grant was talking about being directed by him in this movie. And he says, yeah, I was doing a take. And then Ang said cut. And he came over to me and was like, uh, could you do it again? But like, be good this time. <laughs> That's brutal. That's brutal. I know. It is Brutal out here, as Olivia Rodrigo would say. Listen, whatever he did, it worked because one thing you absolutely cannot clock on anybody in this movie are the performances. Yeah, no, absolutely. So true. Oh, that sucks, though. (laughs) Yeah, it does. So Margaret goes to get help and enter Willoughby on a horse that almost tramples the poor girl. The, The cinematography on this moment was great because Margaret's like running... And Marianne is like, Margaret, look out. And Margaret like turns completely in the wrong direction and then like spins back around and sees the horse coming and screams. And then he's completely on a different side of her. It it was just, it was very good. It was disorienting a little bit like, can't tell how close this call actually was. Willoughby comes over 
to help Marianne. And he's like, can I ascertain if there's any, may I have, we love consent in this house. May I have your permission to ascertain if there are any breaks? And, and then like slowly stripping off her shoe and rolling her foot around. And um, he's very hot. Yeah. He scoops her up. He carries her back. He's so kind to the family. And as he's leaving, Mrs. Dashwood is like following him out. And Marianne whispers, his name, his name. <laughs> he's so good. And they get his name. And then Eleanor tells Marianne she needs to change or she'll catch a cold. And this was one of my favorite moments. Marianne goes, what care I for colds when there is such a man? And Eleanor says, you will care very much when your nose swells up. And Marianne, without skipping a beat, goes, you are right. Help me, Eleanor. <laughs> and help her upstairs to change. I love the honesty of, of siblings in that moment. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. Yeah, that is a great moment between them, especially when um, Mrs. Dashwood is like, tell me if I'm hurting you. And Eleanor is like, you're not hurting her. She's <laughs> yeah. <okay." laughs> yeah. I do not think she feels pain, mama. Yes. I mean, he does walk in just like chiseled and dripping and gallant. Oh, and I love the way he says, if we're going to talk about a great line read, the way he says, well, let's get you up and I'll get you home. Right. And just like so like this isn't an inconvenience. It's my pleasure to help you. Like it, it is a great meet cute. Oh, yeah. He is very smooth. Mm -hmm. Very, very smooth. Well, speaking of good line readings, does that bring us to Becca's study question? It does listeners we have made it to the study questions so here we are we have a couple the first question and everyone has to answer each one is what is the best line delivery in the movie so far i think it's hugh grant saying maybe margaret is right piracy is the only option is that also yours molly that actually it's on my list but it is not mine i think mine has to be edward also edward saying right where the coffee beans come from (laughs) (laughs) so good just so like subtle and the way that he's trying so hard to not sound like he's being funny but like they're having this moment chef's kiss oh so perfect yeah amen shouts to Hugh Grant for just making Edward into a dreamboat in this movie oh yes all right I have two one is what care I for cold when there is such a man and then Eleanor saying you will care when your nose spells up. And she goes, you all right. Help me, Eleanor. That was also on my list. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, number two is when Margaret asks Colonel Brandon what the West Indies are like. And he goes, the air is full of spices. Spices. Can I add one to my to my list? I also have, is love a fancy or a feeling or affairs? I do not deny that I think very highly of him, that I esteem him, that I like him. <laughs> specifically when Kate Winslet says it not when Emma Thompson says it yeah oh yeah when she says it's specifically I think they she doesn't say very she says they I think very highly of him no she does a great priggish Eleanor mocking voice (laughs) yeah for sure notable additions to story via the movie Margaret oh yeah yeah I mean Margaret the everything about Margaret (laughs) tall's oh good Right, Margaret with her treehouse and her, you know, love affair with Edward. It's fantastic. Justice for Margaret. And you just watch Margaret fall in love with like all of her sister's suitors, which I feel like as a younger sibling, that's what you do, right? Yeah. So it's very relatable. Also, like the fact that the story, it's about sisters 
and we always talk about Eleanor and Marianne, the original title of this book, but like Margaret's there too. Yes, I I would totally agree that this movie does real justice to Margaret, a very underrepresented character. I will also give shouts to my boy Eddie, who I think gets a much better um, portrayal in this adaptation than in the book. You really get to see all of that shy sweetness that Jane Austen talks about actually play out in an utterly charming, floppy Hugh Grant performance. So floppy. So floppy. Um, Best and worst aspects of the film so far. Best first. Or let's do worst first and then end on a positive note. (laughs) I'm going to just say the casting. Really, I want to see 21-year-old Eleanor Dashwood. Yeah. That's it. That's my only criticism of the movie. But I wish that we could go back in time and have Emma Thompson be 21 when this movie gets made. And I don't know what we would have done with, I mean, I guess, you know, baby Kate Winslet could have paid, played Margaret, but I just find it so distracting that this middle-aged woman is in the situation. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm going to have to agree both with it's, it's hard because overall I want to say, I mean, I think the casting is perfect. However, they're just in the wrong time they're in the wrong ages yeah because Brandon should be 10 years younger Eleanor should be 10 years younger and everyone else is perfect and also they play the characters so well so it's so hard because I can't I can't say that they are wrongly cast but I can't say that they're well cast either so that has to be a criticism of mine as well so everything else I I mean it's just so good so far I would agree I think um I think I want to be really clear and I think you guys have been really clear as well that Emma Thompson's performance in this is a treasure Alan Rickman's performance in this is a treasure it's just distracting as far as they're playing much younger than they actually are and if it were a play we wouldn't care (laughs) well yeah it's like the I haven't seen it but the movie version of Dear Evan Hansen for example, mm-hmm. a lot of people have said, which is funny because that actor is the same age as some of the other actors playing high school students in that movie, but he just appears older than them. Um, Becca, have you seen it? Are you? No, I'm. I'm just. I'm just horrified. I'm reeling that you compared Emma Thompson's performance in this movie to Ben Platt's performance in the movie of Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> well, I didn't. Say, first of all, I love Ben Platt. Um, second of all, I have not seen him in the movie. I just think the age thing is something that distracts people mm-hmm. from the story, and this is distracting from the story. But other than that, I have no complaints, honestly. Yeah, me neither. Okay. Best thing in the movie so far? Just to talk about something we haven't talked about yet, I think that the music in the movie is amazing. You have some background soundtrack, like, dropped tracks, but for the most part, it is in the, like, Ten Rules Danish, you know, movie world of music that is actually being played. And that is most frequently the music, right? Marianne playing the piano. Someone else mm-hmm. is playing the piano in the background. And I always think that that's a really lovely touch. Um, and it's just it's just gorgeous, gorgeous piano music. Yeah, I really love the music. Seeing all of the dogs has yeah, been the dogs really are special. amazing. Yeah, the dogs. I remember early, early on when we first started Pride and Prejudice, I was like, do they have any animals? And Becca was like, don't worry. We'll get there. I said something along the lines of, assume there are always dogs there. Yeah. Yeah. And this movie really gets, plays into that, especially 
especially at Barton, because there are just dogs on dogs on dogs. There's one scene that I really like that I think might be one of my favorite moments, even though nothing's happening in it. It's after Brandon said, and all the better for her. And then he's walking away with his gun and his like whip thing. And he's walking and his dog is next to him and he's wearing that hat. Well, and the dog is carrying an animal. That dog just had a good day. The dog is like, I did it. I found the dead animal. And I'm like, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm happy for you, dogs. You crushed it. Yeah. Like, I'm vegan and that was weird for me, but I also was so into it. Yeah. I think it's so hard to pick because I love this whole movie, but I'm going to give shouts to um, specifically the relationship between Edward and Margaret Mm. is special. We talked about it a little bit, but. taking an interest in Margaret and giving her joy after her dad dies is really something that makes him pretty forgivable throughout a movie where he needs a little bit of forgiveness. Sure. Okay, that leads us to the last note, and this is a little different from best thing in the film. Who wins this part of the film? Who or what? It could be a moment, it could be a person, it could be a set piece, it could be a dog. I think I want to give my win to Gemma Jones. She didn't do anything particularly, like, nothing in particular that was like, this takes the cake. But I was so excited to see her there. I was so excited by her portrayal of Mrs. Dashwood. I think that the range on this woman is incredible and I think she's just like the perfect casting I think it's going to be a tie between Gemma Jones as Mrs. Dashwood and Edward and Margaret sword fighting Mm -hmm. those are my two like big takeaways from this half of the movie yeah I think that I just like in order to keep everyone on their toes I do want to give Colonel Brandon a big shout out his like walk softly and carry a big stick way with Marianne is very endearing The way that he, to your point, engages immediately in, like, sort of a game of improv with Margaret, right? Like, seeing the delight in her face when she's like, what's India like, right? And playing with her. But really the moments where he is just, like, he's just never creepy with her. And for an older man smitten with a young girl, you get some points for resisting the creep. I feel like I need to change my answer because I immediately made my phone background <laughs> Colonel Brandon and then I didn't give him the win. I did it for you. I did it. We're a team. Yes, you're right. You're right. I just want to like to Alan Rickman, wherever you are in my heart, you are a winner. Always. You inspired me. I have your back. Don't worry, Molly. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I am going to give my uh, win to somebody else we just criticized, Emma Thompson, because not only is she playing the wit and practicality and vulnerability of Eleanor very beautifully. But this script is no easy feat. I've seen many Austin movies where uh, there's a lot of really rushing to get everything into the two hours and things don't go totally correct. But the way this movie just sings through the plot and cuts where it needs to and makes sacrifices where it needs to, but also tells its own cohesive story is really masterful. And Emma Thompson is not seen as a screenwriter as often as she's seen as an actor. But I think this movie is really a masterclass for her. So kudos to Emma Thompson. Absolutely. So can I just say, so I'm not going to be on the pod for my favorite part of the movie. So can I pre-shout out? Yes. Yes. 
The best part of the movie is Emma Thompson's performance when she is praying over Marianne. Yes. And that line of, please don't leave me alone. Right? It's just the best thing in the film. And so I just would like to say that now. I would probably agree with you on that when she says I can bear all of the all of the rest but I can't bear this it's oh I cry every yeah. time we we all three were crying when that was happening yeah 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 that part broke me and I am sure that we will talk a lot about it but like I'm really glad you brought it up now because gosh it was so good yeah I mean like what else does like the souls say more than anything to the people we love right like just please don't leave me right yeah and she's been through so much by that point like everything is happening and she's just been bearing it and bearing it and in that moment she's like I can't take this too right and she's like apparently you are the only thing I need right yeah yeah it's so good so enjoy whoever you're talking about (laughs) that part with (laughs) we will make sure to say listen Vanessa wants well you know what we'll you. just write something down we'll read it out uh when that person comes <laughs> Thank on you. Vanessa wants you to know no I've said my piece I this is in fantastic people's hands brilliant people's hands I have no doubt that you will give the moment it's due I just I had to be on the record that that is objectively the best part of the film yeah Absolutely. Vanessa, this has been such a delight, such a treasure. You're a wonderful person to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. And likewise, and really, if you need a list of (laughs) Pride and Prejudice adaptations, I will send it and read them all and have me back on. But while you're on Sense and Sensibility, read Jane in Austin, the Austin, Texas retelling of Sense and Sensibility. I can't wait. To read that. I am so excited. It has a Bernie Madoff type dad. It's so well brought up to date. Wow. Willoughby is like a, a guy, guy who wants to be a rocker, you know, in like the Ooh, Austin music scene. Yeah, that'll do I it. I just like wow. can't, I cannot recommend it more highly. That sounds fantastic. The only modern adaptation I've heard of of Sense and Sensibility is from Prada Tonata, which is famously a hate watch. Uh- <laughs> Well, read Jane and Austen. It's fantastic. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming. Do you have anything you want to plug to our listeners? What shows you're on social media if you want them to follow you or websites or anything? Yeah, you can follow me at Vanessa M. Zoltan on Instagram and Twitter. We'll say that. And buy my book. If you like spending time with me, I have a book called Praying with Jane Eyre. Oh, hell yeah. And it is me even more edited than Molly is gonna make me so <laughs> Molly made me even more charming than I am and then my editor did that again so nice all right well listeners it's been real Vanessa again thank you so much this is such a delight and until next time stay proper and carry that dead animal in your mouth with pride I love that oh yeah tail up ears perked you know tail up ears perk i was gonna say find someone to polish a gun with (laughs) (laughs) that works too listen that's a that's a euphemism yeah i ever heard (laughs) pod and prejudice is edited by molly burdick and audio produced by graham cook our show art is designed by torrence brown our show is transcribed by speech docs podcast transcription for transcripts and to learn more about our team check out our website at podandprejudice.com
To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us, or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.